Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors who give at paradoxgiving.com. You make this podcast possible. Today, we are wrapping up our series in the book of Job, and this episode is entitled The Surreality of Job. We have spent the last six weeks in the book of Job together. And today we look at the last couple of paragraphs in Job chapter 42, which brings this poem to a close. Now, a bit of a recap in case you have not been with us the previous weeks. The story of Job revolves around a man who is considered righteous and blameless. He is devoted to God and God in turn has blessed this man for his devotion. God has given Job massive amounts of material wealth a healthy family with 10 kids, and a loving wife. From there, the story all of a sudden cuts to heaven, which is a bit of a surprise in itself. We find that God and the devil are speaking to one another, and the devil is exposing God's insecurities. Specifically, the devil tells God that Job only worships and is devoted to God because of the blessings that God has given to Job. And so in response, God says, no, that surely can't be right. So Satan says, if you take away all of his material wealth and safety, then Job will turn on you. Now, God thinks about this and says, all right, I'd like to see what happens. And so because of that, a miserable amount of suffering befalls upon Job. Within a matter of a few verses, Job loses everything, his material wealth, his servants, And even all 10 of his children die in a natural disaster. Now, in response to losing everything, Job in chapter one refuses to curse the name of God and instead says, blessed be the name of the Lord for God gives and God takes away. Then in chapter two, we return to heaven where God and Satan are speaking to each other. God says, see, Job stayed devoted to me. And Satan says, oh, Job is a selfish man. If he falls sick, he will turn and curse your name. Now, God being insecure once again says, all right, let's see what happens. And God then inflicts terrible suffering and illness upon Job. So Job is in agony. He is scraping boils with a pot shard. And in the midst of all of this pain, his wife says to him, Job, just curse God and die. But Job refuses to curse the name of God. Instead, Job says that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And after rejecting the advice of his wife, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to visit Job, and they sit in silence with him for seven days. And after seven days of silence, Job begins to speak in chapter three. Now, if you've been with us before, you know that there's something very important that happens between chapter two and chapter three. The writing shifts from pose to poetry in chapter three. And when you look at the literary structure of Job, chapters 1 and 2 are written in prose, and chapters 3 to 41 are all written in poetry. It then shifts back to prose in 42, but the poetry is the heart of the book of Job. 
And when the literary structure shifts in chapter 3, so does Job's mindset. Job no longer insists that God is good. In fact, Job curses the name of God, which is exactly what the devil said he would do, and then professes his own innocence and questions whether or not God is good. Now, Job questions God's goodness for several chapters, 39 chapters, in fact. And in the midst of that, his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all retaliate and say, no, Job, you have it wrong. Do not tell us that God is bad or that God is to blame for this. You are to blame for this. You sinned and you are suffering because of your sin. This goes back and forth for all of these chapters. And then God finally shows up in chapter 38 and for four chapters barrages Job with questions about the origin of the earth and the rules that govern its existence. Upon seeing this bigger picture that God reveals from chapters 38 to 41, Job responds with reverence. And after responding with reverence, the literary structure shifts once again, but this time from poetry back to prose midway through chapter 42. And it's shortly after this shift occurs that we begin to read our verses for today's episode found in chapter 42, verse 10 to 17. We read, Then the Lord returned all of Job's possessions and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his relatives and everyone who had known him came to his house to celebrate. They commiserated with him over all the suffering that the Lord had inflicted on him. As they left, each one gave him a coin or a gold ring. So the Lord blessed the end of Job's life more than the beginning. Job now had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Job also had seven sons and three daughters. The eldest he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the world, there were no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. He gave them a share of his possessions along with their brothers. After this, Job lived for 140 years. He lived to see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, and he died at a very great age. And this is the end of the book of Job. Now, throughout my life, I've heard over and over again that this is a story about remaining devoted to God and to religion. And God threw a test at Job, and Job withstood the test, so God doubled Job's blessings. So essentially, what the takeaway for Christendom has been is that if you endure suffering and you hold on to your faith, then God will give you double the amount of blessings you have now. And while I hear that, and while that is shaky theology, I could understand it except for one major problem. What about Job's 10 dead kids? And the whole idea that everything went back to normal and everything was good is fine as long as you don't stop to dwell on the fact that those kids were simply irreplaceable. And the only note of comfort is that the author tries to tell us that Job's new daughters are the most beautiful daughters in the land. 
And it's almost like Job is looking at his new daughters and he's thinking, oh man, these new daughters are so much better looking than my old daughters. God has surely blessed me. And when you consider the triteness and the superficiality that this author deals with the death of Job's 10 kids, it seems like the entire ending of Job is messed up. And for this reason, when we told Paradox that we were going to be studying the book of Job during the pandemic, the reaction was overwhelmingly uniform. Man, Craig, I don't know if that book's the right time. I mean, that ending is messed up. Job gets new kids and everything's supposed to be fine. And for the majority of my life, I have felt like the ending of Job is messed up as well. But is it really messed up? Or can a closer look reveal something different? To talk about a closer look of scripture, I want to talk about a film that came out 10 years ago called Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as the protagonist named Cobb and directed by Christopher Nolan. Now, if you don't know anything about Inception, I'm going to give you a brief overview, and it's a bit complicated, so stay with me. Cobb leads a group of criminals that are in the business of stealing ideas. They are able to steal ideas by putting people to sleep and then entering their dreams and seeing what the person believes, thinks, and feels. Now, the dream world is a very creative visual aesthetic. In fact, there's one scene where Paris folds in half in on itself, and it's a wild sight to behold. Now, Cobb's main motivating factor in this film is that he wants to be reunited with his kids. And so he does things all in an effort to get back with his children. Now, as you can imagine, jumping between dream worlds and the real world gets rather confusing. And so the way the characters know whether they're in the dream world or the real world is they each have an individual totem, a small, heavy object that acts a certain way only in the real world. For example, Cobb's totem is a top. And when he spins the top in the dream world, the top will spin infinitely. But when Cobb spins the top in the real world, it will eventually tip over and he'll know that he is an actual reality. Now, as the film goes, there's all sorts of explosions and excitement and blaring soundtracks. But the last scene is Cobb being reunited with his kids. And as he is in the house, he spins the top, but then he is overwhelmed with joy to see his kids. So he runs to his kids. And as they are reunited and as they are hugging, Christopher Nolan, the director, moves from Cobb holding his kids back down to the top. And the last shot of the movie is the top spinning for a very, very long time. But then the top begins to wobble, but it is still spinning. And before we can see whether or not the top will topple over, the film cuts to black leaving the viewer hanging without an answer. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio was recently asked in January of 2020 what happened at the end of Inception. Was Cobb really in the real world or was he in the dream world? And Leonardo DiCaprio on this podcast answered with these words. He said, what happened? I have no idea. <laughs> 
And when you consider Christopher Nolan and the ending he creates, we talk about the ending of Inception and we all take an opinion as to whether or not Cobb was in the real world or if it was saying something bigger about the theme. But we continue to think about the ending of this film because it was left so open-ended. We're willing to do this because we trust that Christopher Nolan is a master filmmaker. He is one of the most prolific filmmakers of our day, and we are willing to give him more creative license because we trust that he knows what he is doing. Which brings us back to the book of Job. We have talked about how the book of Job is a poem. So when we consider the quality of the poetry of the book of Job, a question that I want to ask you is this. What if the author of Job is a master poet? What happens when we assume that this author knows exactly what they are doing? And they're not just mediocre at this art form of poetry, but instead they are a master and they have crafted each word intentionally to make a larger point. Well, if you trusted that the author of Job is a master poet, would you be willing to give even more credence and space to the metaphors, symbolism, and images that we find in this poem? So if we trust that this author is a master poet, then we might be willing to accept that they didn't handle the death of these children so superficially. The way that Stephen Mitchell, who is a commentator on the book of Job, writes about it, he says these words. We need to realize, though, that the author has changed language again in chapter 42 and thereby changed realities. We have descended to the smaller humanity of the old legend at the beginning of the book. And so what Stephen Mitchell is arguing is that there is a smaller vision of reality both at the beginning and the end of the book. And in the middle is 39 chapters of poetry, which are about a larger humanity than the beginning or end is willing to acknowledge. This is similar to the movie, The Wizard of Oz. The opening scenes are filmed in black and white. The ending scenes are filmed in black and white. And in the middle is a larger vision of the place called Oz, which is filmed in glorious technicolor. Stephen Mitchell says that the author is trying to do the same thing by putting all of these words in prose at the beginning and the end and filling the larger humanity with poetry. Once we can understand that, Stephen Mitchell talks about the new children and he writes these words. He says, here in the smaller humanity, the new children are the old children. Even though Job's possessions are doubled, he is given seven sons and three daughters as before, all of them instantaneously grown up. They have sprung back to life as gracefully as the bones of a murdered child in a Grimm's tale. So what Stephen Mitchell is pointing out is he is saying that when God says, I will double your possessions, everything should be doubled, including Job's children. Job should have 14 sons and six daughters at the end of the story. But the fact that the author kept the number the same indicated that these children that were at the beginning of this book of Job are the same children at the end of the book of Job. Now, this may seem like I am inferring too much, but this would bring me back to that question. What if the author of Job is a master poet? 
Because if we assume that this author knows what they're doing and this poem has truly stood the test of time, then we look back at the entire story of Job and rather than thinking, man, this ending is messed up, we look back and we ask the question, was it all a dream? Did Job really experience all of that pain and suffering? Or did he just imagine that it all occurred? And when we consider the poetry of Job and the bookends that encapsulate it, all of a sudden Job becomes a poem about instantaneously seeing and feeling all of the suffering one will experience in a lifetime. It's almost like God gives Job a vision of the pain and suffering he will go through. And when we look at all of the pain that Job will endure and the questions that it arises, all of a sudden, the central question of Job is, is life with all of this suffering worth living? Now, this is a pretty heavy question. And the problem with most Christians today is they read chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 42. And when you consider those three chapters by themselves, the answer to this question seems rather superficial and shallow. Which is why it's so important for us to pay attention to the poetry where Job maintains his innocence, even in the face of God. And when you look specifically at the sections of that poetry, you realize how heartbreaking, how painful, and how deep this writing actually is. Because in the first section of poetry, we read about how Job feels betrayed by God. Then in the second section of this poetry, Job divorces himself from his religion. His experience confronts his religion and he says, this religion has to go because it doesn't speak honestly to what I know to be true. And then in the third section, Job is convinced that God does not care about Job's suffering or Job's prayer. For that reason, Job begins to believe that God is dead. And Job experiences the death of God 700 years before Jesus Christ was crucified. And when you consider those words and the depths with which they are willing to talk about suffering, we realize that this poem is anything but superficial when it looks at the question, is life with all of this suffering worth living? And when we look at the literary structure of Job this way, we realize that the author has left us something rather profound. When you place side by side the opening paragraphs of the book of Job and the closing paragraphs of the book of Job. So let's compare the opening and the closing of Job so that we can see the transformation of this title character and see how the book addresses the question, if life is worth living with all of the suffering that we encounter. In the opening chapter, we read Job had seven sons and three daughters. We find that in chapter 42, verses 13 and 14, when the author says Job also had seven sons and three daughters. The difference this time is the author names the three daughters. 
We read that their names are Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hapuk. Now, when you translate those words or those names into English, the first daughter is named Dove, the second is Cinnamon, and the third is Eyeshadow. Dove, Cinnamon, and Eyeshadow. Now, each of these three things were important symbols in ancient Hebraic culture. Doves represented peace, cinnamon represented abundance, and eyeshadow represented a uniquely feminine kind of grace. And so we hear the names of these daughters and we realize that the sons are not named. So in other words, in the closing paragraphs of Job, the women step forward and the men begin to fade into the background. Then in the opening paragraph, we read every year his sons would hold a great banquet in the house of each of them in turn, and they would invite their sisters to come feast with them. Now, why did the author feel that it was important to say these things? Why do we need to know that the daughters were invited to go to the sons' houses and eat feasts with them? Well, it's because women couldn't own property. Women didn't have houses. They would have to go to their brother's houses to participate in the feasts because they were not allowed the same rights that men were allowed in Job's day. Now, what's really interesting is when you compare and contrast that with the closing paragraphs, because in verse 15 of chapter 42, we read, in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, which initially is discouraging to read about how women are being valued for their beauty. But that's only half of the sentence because it continues to read, and their father Job gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. So Job has this vision from God where he sees all of the suffering that he will endure in a lifetime. And in response, pursues gender equality in 700 BCE. <laughs> Imagine having an encounter with the divine and then somebody asking you, wow, you met God? What are you going to do about it? And they say, you know, this whole thing where women can't own property is wrong. This is remarkable. Now, it's here that you may be saying, Craig, come on, you are reading way too much into just a few sentences at the end of the book of Job. Surely, surely if the author wanted us to see this, they would have given us some hints that this writing was going toward a feminist bent. To which I would say, yes, the author definitely gave us a hint and a big hint all the way back in chapter two, when Job was stricken with illness and was in pain and agony. Job's wife begs Job to just simply curse God and die. Now, in chapter two, Job refuses to accept the advice of his wife. But then when you read the rest of the story, you realize that she is a prophet because she tells Job exactly what he is going to do. He spends 39 chapters cursing the name of God and then eventually dies in chapter 42. The whole story of Job is about how Job curses God and dies, which is exactly what she says will happen. 
And when you look at the beginning and ending of Job, Job's biggest transformation from beginning to end is how he treats his daughters differently because he realizes the whole system is against them. Now, it's here that you may object and say, well, then, Craig, why on earth did the author feel it was necessary to comment on their beauty? That is an excellent question. And to answer that, I want to tell you about one of my favorite bands of all time, a band called Rage Against the Machine. Now, Rage Against the Machine tried to warn all of us that white supremacists had compromised police department and law enforcement officers everywhere. In 1991, they wrote a song called Killing in the Name, and the verse of that song goes like this. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Now, as you can imagine, whether it's 1991 or 2020, there are a lot of people who don't appreciate when you point out white supremacists in law enforcement. So the lead guitarist, a man named Tom Morello, has been told repeatedly that he needs to shut up with his politics and just play guitar. Now, this phrase was so important to address that in his masterclass, Tom Morello wraps the whole thing up by talking specifically about people who tell him to just shut up and play guitar. His exact words are, when I picked up a guitar, I didn't put down my First Amendment rights. Make sure there's not a firewall between who you are, what you believe in, and what you do in your art. There's an extra hot place in hell for artists who have convictions, but stifle them for commercial gain. What Tom Morello is telling us is that when you believe in something and you create art that is contrary to or silent in the things that you believe in, then you have created meaningless art and it is a form of blasphemy. In other words, beauty without justice is vanity. Tom Morello then goes on to say an important part of the human experience is the struggle for a more decent and just planet. And when we consider Morello's words with the idea that he is a lead electric guitar player in a rock band, you realize that there is actually a lot of value to expressing oneself creatively through a medium for what they care about. So while beauty without justice is vanity, justice without beauty is laborious. Consider all of the movements that inspire you. So many of the reasons that we're inspired is not because of the technical language that are in bills that have been passed, even though that's incredibly important. The inspiration typically comes from artists and musicians who create and illustrate why that language in those bills are important. Beauty without justice is vanity, and justice without beauty is laborious. There was a moment where this became obvious just last weekend when I attended the protest for Black Lives Matter here in Redlands, California. There was this moment when we were all standing next to each other at Ed Hales Park in downtown Redlands, when one of the speakers stood up and the first thing that she said was she looked around at all of us and said, this is what heaven looks like. In other words, she was commenting on the beauty of this movement for justice. 
And while white Christians love to think about heaven as the place where we can go and not have to talk about racism anymore, a much more realistic picture of heaven is that heaven is the place where we go and speak more honestly, more compassionately, and with greater urgency about ensuring equality and justice for all. So when this speaker says this is what heaven looks like, she is taking in the idea that beauty without justice is vanity and justice without beauty is laborious. There is a thin line between rage against the machine and the book of Job. Job rages against the machine that is the Lord on high. Job says, I don't care if you tell me that God is good. I have not experienced a good God. So I am calling for justice. And the way that Job communicates these ideas is not through prose or spreadsheets, but through poetry. And one of the central ideas behind the book of Job is that the suffering that we all endure is an injustice. We cannot justify the pain that we experience here on the planet. But the fact that Job wakes up from this encounter with the divine and immediately moves toward justice specifically for women raises the question, why aren't we doing something to end injustices everywhere? Yes, suffering and pain is injustice. Therefore, the work is to do something about it and to bring injustices all around us to an end. And when we pursue justice and righteousness, what the author is telling us is that it is ultimately a beautiful work, a beautiful life, a beautiful endeavor. And while it can be discouraging to consider the injustices of the world, there is also hope in this poem. Because when Job names his three daughters, Dove, Cinnamon, and Eyeshadow, the author is also affirming the goodness of peace, abundance, and grace. And each of those three things can be found in the beginning and the end of the book of Job. In the opening paragraphs, we read, Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In verse 11 of chapter 42, we read, All of Job's relatives and everyone who had known him came to his house to celebrate. They commiserated with him over all the suffering that the Lord had inflicted on him. So at the beginning of this story, we read about how Job is blameless and perfect, but it seems that nobody wants to come and visit him. Or Job doesn't want people to come and visit him because he might sin if he's around them. But at the end of this story, Job is around a dining table with his friends, with his family, and they are commiserating over the injustices and suffering they are experiencing. There is something holy in the honesty they share around a dining table. And if you've ever been in the depths of despair and you've had friends come over and listen to your plight and shoulder the burden with you, well, what word would you use to describe that other than grace? Grace. 
What the author of Job is telling us is that grace is real and grace can be found in relationships. If we return to the opening paragraph in Job 1, 3, we read Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants. At the end of Job, we read that he had double that amount. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Well, a traditional reading of this passage tells us that God made Job twice as rich. But when you consider that we are in the hands of a master poet and that nothing changed from the beginning to the end, what happens is after Job receives this vision of all the pain he will endure, he looks around and he has the same amount, but it's somehow more. The word we use to describe this is abundance. And abundance is different than greed. Because greed will be when the rich people tell the poor people that there is simply not enough for everyone. But abundance has a way of looking at the present in all of its imperfections and somehow telling us that this moment and this wealth is enough. If we were an abundant nation, we would look at the massive amount of wealth we have in the United States and say, there is enough for everyone here. And when you consider this beautiful, poetic, symbolic move that happens from the beginning to the end, where Job has the same amount, but it is somehow more, what the author is telling us is that abundance is real and abundance can be found in the present. Which brings us back to the first paragraph where we read, Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of his children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. But by the end of this story, Job is no longer offering sacrifices. In fact, God tells Job to offer sacrifices, and Job just doesn't do it. And instead of offering sacrifices, Job just decides it's time to die. And in the last two verses of the book of Job, we read, After this, Job lived for 140 years. He lived to see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, and he died at a very great age. So when we read in the opening paragraphs that Job is offering sacrifices each and every day, hoping to keep God's wrath at bay, the only word I can use to describe the behavior of Job is anxiety. Job is worried that he or one of his children might slip up in just one small incremental way and God will unleash holy hell on his family. So Job is offering these sacrifices on a daily basis because he is afraid. He's afraid of death. He is afraid of life. And he is afraid of God. But at the end of this story, Job is really close to death. 
So close, in fact, that we would assume that he'd be in a panic. But as we read the words of Job on his deathbed, the only word that can really describe what Job is going through is peace. He is surrounded by his family and the generations who will come after him. And Job dies and it's good. This is in sharp contrast with the beginning of this story. And what the author is telling us is that peace is real and peace can be made with mortality. And when you compare and contrast the opening and the closing of Job, and you realize that the author affirms peace and grace and abundance, and that the author values beauty and justice and recognizes that they are intertwined with each other, you realize that the central question of Job never really gets answered. We ask the question, is life with all of this suffering worth living? And the majority of Job never directly answers that question. And I believe the author refuses to answer this question because the author wants you to answer that question. Yes, the author affirms some of the good things, but the majority of this poetry is cathartic. And if you felt betrayed by God, then Job would say, so have I. And yes, the book of Job offers hope in the forms of peace, abundance, and grace. But let's be very clear. The author addresses the question, but never answers it. And what most Christians would like to do today is go to the author of Job and ask them point blank. Can you just tell me yes or no? Is life with all of this suffering worth living? I believe the author of Job would say, let me make you a movie with an answer to that question. And after a few weeks go by, you receive a link to download a movie. And the movie is entitled The Answer to Your Question. So you click on the link and you push play. And the first shot of this movie is the author and the author is holding a top. The author looks directly into the camera and says, you asked me, is life with all of this suffering worth living? Well, I will give you a very simple answer. I'm going to spin this top. And if this top spins infinitely, then the answer to your question is no. But if this top falls over, then the answer to your question is yes. Life is worth living with all of this suffering. So then in the movie, the author begins to spin the top and then the author walks away. And you watch through your screen whether or not the top will fall. And the top spins for some time. And as you look closer, you see the top begin to wobble just a little bit. But then the top recovers and continues to spin. And suddenly, the movie cuts to black. Thank you for listening to the Paradox Podcast. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.